Jesus Christ is the best thing about us at Beach Haven Baptist Church. He is certainly the best thing about me. And this morning, I want you to join with me in Matthew 16 to discover other reasons why that happens to be the case. It does remind me of Morris, who was um, a bit of an overconfident mechanic. A heart surgeon came in one day, uh, and Morris worked on his car, and he called him over. He said, now, look, your work and mine are about the same, he said to the surgeon. He said, I take out hearts of cars, and I take out the valves, and I grind them and place them back in, and I, um, I put in new parts. Why is it that you make the big bucks, and I make what I make? And the heart surgeon said, well, how about try doing it when the engine's still running? And that's why. In Matthew 16, Jesus deals with a heart, a heart issue that's terribly, terribly important, and it might be more relevant than we imagine. Uh, in fact, I think this could be one of the most pressing issues of our day, and I've never heard a message on this passage in all the years I've been listening to preaching and, and all. In Matthew 16, what we find is that we find the Pharisees and Sadducees joining in in a very unusual and unholy alliance to demand from Jesus more miraculous confirmation of His message. And when they did that, Jesus treated it like a sickness. Beginning in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing Him, asked that He would show them a sign from heaven. And He answered and said to them, well, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we've not taken bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have no bread? Now, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. From the 5,000, they had 12 basketfuls. From the 4,000, they had seven basketfuls, larger baskets. And my question is, what happened to all the bread? And they're crossing and they don't have any more. Jesus says, do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I do not, did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine or teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We think that such people that want more confirmation are thoughtful and careful and studious, that they're very reasonable. 
And we give them books to read and we point them to YouTube channels to help relieve their confusion or we help them help to prove the Christian faith. This is not what Jesus did. I don't believe it's what He would do today. Wanting more confirmation of the Christian faith than what Jesus has already given is a sickness. And Jesus treats it as such in this text. And so in this text, there are, there are symptoms. There's a diagnosis. There's a cure. And then there's preventative medicine. Let's look first at the symptoms of this. And this morning, I want to address the subject. Jesus treats the sickness of sign-seeking. Let's look first at the symptoms of the sickness of sign-seeking. And there are three of them. In fact, you may have the sickness of sign-seeking if you've got any one of these three symptoms. One, strange alignments. In verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees gathered together in an unholy alliance to oppose Jesus Christ. Now, that's unusual for them to do because the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like one another. The Pharisees were liberal in their theology. They didn't believe the deity or trinity, uh, the deity of Christ or the trinity, and yet they were very, very rigid in their religious traditions. The Sadducees were liberal in their theology, and they were the aristocracy that piled around the religious crowd or the uh, political crowd, and they despised one another. The Pharisees were laymen. Sadducees were the priestly class, and they piled around with one another, and they uh, uh, are piled around with the aristocracy, the Sadducees did. But in this case, they gather together in an unholy alliance because they have a common enemy in Jesus Christ. In other words, they were united in their opposition to Christ, and there are some people like that today. They claim that they want to grow in their faith, but they only read those blogs or those websites or materials that are critical of the Christian faith. They don't read anything contrary. They do that with the Christian ethic and Christian morals and sexuality, these kinds of things, just to boost them in their unbelief. This is a strange alignment. Then there are hostile questions. It says here, they came testing him. That's the same word used in Matthew chapter 4 when the devil tested Jesus. And they are a tool of Satan here. They don't want more information. What they want is a debate. And they want to disprove Jesus Christ. So they're hostile questions. Then there is intellectual neglect. Look here at the end of verse 1 to verse 3. They wanted a sign, a miraculous sign from heaven to confirm who He was. And He answered and said to them something from the created world. Well, when it's evening, you say it's going to be uh, good weather if the sky is red. And then in the morning, you say it's going to be poor weather, stormy weather, if the sky is red. In other words, you go outside and you calculate what you see there, and, and you can tell about what the weather is going to be. And yet, I am here, and I am more clear than the weather, Jesus said. In fact, I am a sign of the time, that now is the time to repent and place faith in me, and you can't see that. Jesus is saying here, I am more clear than the weather signs. The ones that are current right now. Not what we anticipate tomorrow or the next day or later in the week or a 10-day forecast. Right now, I am more clear than the current weather signs you have before you, Jesus said. 
And they're neglecting this. They're dismissing the evidence that God's already given them. The evidence of creation, the evidence in Christ, the evidence in the conscience, the evidence in the church. And these are clearer even than the weather signs in the sky. You may have the sickness of sign-seeking if what God has given you to trust Him is not yet enough. It's enough for God. It should be enough for all the earth. So what God has given us, as far as evidence of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ, is enough. And, and you need to know, God expects us to act on it now and to trust Him now. It's popular in this day to say that salvation is a process. No, it's not. It never has been a process. Salvation happens instantaneously. Now, there are some people that need a process because they're bound up in false religion or they're bound up in sin or they're bound up in uh, a poor attitude. But there's nothing about God that requires a process to be saved. There's nothing about the gospel that requires a process to be saved. The first time we hear of the death and resurrection of Christ for our sins and God's invitation to repent and believe the gospel, that's enough, and we should immediately give our hearts and lives to Christ. These are symptoms, strange alignments, hostile questions, intellectual neglect. But there, that moves on to the second item here, and that's the diagnosis of the sickness of sign-seeking. And there, there are two ailments that go with the diagnosis. One is hypocrisy. Jesus, in chapter 16, verse 3, said, called them hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. They're coming to Jesus and saying, you know, we're kind of uncertain about this, and, and if you just give us one more sign, we will believe. In other words, they put on a facade as if they're objective and as if they're fair with the evidence. And Jesus saw right through it. He said, that's not it at all. What you're wanting is a debate. What you're wanting is to trip me up in order to condemn me. You don't want more information. You are intentionally putting on a face that is not true. And their offspring are still with us. They appeared to be open. They appeared to be uh, committed to the evidence, but in reality they're stubborn. That's hypocrisy. Then there's disloyalty. Look what he says in verse 4. Oh, this is hard. Verse number 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after more confirmation than what God has already given. It's a wicked and an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. In other words, disloyalty. Well, that's the meaning of the word adulterous, where a spouse is not, faith, is not faithful to another spouse. There's disloyalty to the marriage covenant. These words, wicked and adulterous, have a long Old Testament history. Uh, they, they referred to Israel when she worshipped idols, when she oftentimes, even in the religious practices, would engage in immorality. Uh, these are the words that are used for those um, ancient peoples that would take their infants and give them to the burning, flaming God of Molech and sacrifice their children for their religious practices, for the glory of Molech. Uh, this is the word that is used for King Ahab and, and for his queen Jezebel. This is what's used for Manasseh who sealed Judah's fate with his idolatry and his sinfulness and his child sacrifice. In other words, these are some of the harshest terms in the Bible, and they are reserved for those who want more confirmation than what God has already given. This is not a good place to be spiritually. Would you agree with me? That's the diagnosis. Turn with me over to John chapter 3. 
And Jesus elaborates this beginning in verse number 19. And he really gets to the heart of the problem. And he does not say that the problem happens to be the mind or the evidence or the information. He puts the problem someplace else. You know, when Jesus found a scab, he'd pick it. And this is what he does here in verse number 19 of John 3. He says here, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. Jesus Christ has come into the world. And John 1.9 says, a couple chapters back, that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he was the light, and he gave light to everyone. So the whole world is covered up with his light. Enough evidence to trust him, in other words. So light has come into the world, and here's the problem. Men loved darkness rather than light. In other words, their heart has an, has an infatuation with sinfulness, with doubt, skepticism, unbelief, arrogance, a host of other sins, and that's why they have not come to the light. Men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so they engage in self-justification. Then verse 20, For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Reminds me of Josh McDowell, the great popular apologist, who through the years has traveled to university campuses and spoken in he told this one story of being in a New England university and he met a student who had an intellectual problem with Christianity and claimed that because of intellectual problems he could not give himself to Christ. And Josh asked him, why can't you believe? And he replied, well, the New Testament's not reliable. And then I asked, if I demonstrate to you that the New Testament is one of the most reliable pieces of literature of antiquity, will you believe? And he quickly retorted, no. And then Josh McDowell said, well, then you don't have a problem with your mind, but with your will. Do you know why people don't believe in Christ when they've had the evidence presented to them of creation, conscience, Christ, church, the Scripture, the witness of the Holy Spirit? Do you know why? They don't want to. It's not that there is something inferior about the evidence. It's that there's something profoundly inferior about the heart. Ladies and gentlemen, what most people need is not more evidence and information. What they need is more humility and love of the truth. And until your heart breaks away from the desire of self-justification and the arrogance of proving yourself right, and you begin to love the truth and are willing to surrender and submit to God, Christ will never be yours. Never. Christ will never be yours. There'll be no hope of meeting Jesus Christ until that happens. It's a sickness. This is not a happy thing. So there are three symptoms and two ailments that go with it. But then there's a cure. It's rather simple and short. At the end of verse 4, Jesus said, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what in the world could he mean by that? Well, they weren't very open, so he didn't elaborate on it. Jesus will not elaborate on truth with a stubborn person. 
He won't explain anything. In fact, look, look at the next phrase at the end of verse 4, the last one. And he left them and departed. So he broke away from their presence. He left them. He, he shook the dust off his feet like he commanded in chapter 10. He wouldn't give what's holy to dogs. He wouldn't cast his pearls before swine. And so what he did say is that there's one more sign coming. And that's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, back in chapter 12, he's talked about this, and this is the resurrection. Jonah, for example, was in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus Christ would be in the heart of the earth for three days after his death. Jonah was, to put it delicately, spat up on the beach after three days. Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. And so this is the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus roots his historical bodily resurrection and uses it and uses the experience of Jonah, another historical account, as a sign of his own resurrection. Well, do you believe Jonah? Well, absolutely I do. Jesus did. And he said the resurrection is very similar to what happened to Jonah. Jonah was a literal prophet in a literal fish in a literal mess. And the same is true with Jesus. Jesus was literal in the heart of the earth and he rose from the dead. Jesus said, that is the last sign you people are going to get. That's what he told the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, Jesus is speaking before his cross and resurrection. And he's saying, even before I die for the sins of the world, and even before I rise from the dead, that is enough evidence. Ladies and gentlemen, since Jesus uttered these words in chapter 16, we have had the cross, we have had the resurrection, and 2,000 years of changed lives. What do you think our responsibility is to Him today? There's even more responsibility and more of a burden to turn to him because of that well somebody might complain and say well how convenient for you you're relinquishing your responsibility for producing signs and more evidence how convenient for you christians and that just proves that you've just made all of this up look if i had invented or if any of us had invented the christian faith we would have made it a lot easier to believe i would have never used miracles and signs to prove the Christian faith. But you have to understand, miracles and signs are here because God placed them here. I would have never done that because I know how difficult they are to perform. I can't do them. Not at all. These are the essence of the Christian faith. In fact, the Bible begins with a miracle. In the beginning, God what? Created the heavens and the earth. And, and so many have stumbled over that through the years. And God's never revised Genesis 1 and 2. Have you ever noticed that? So the Old Testament begins with a miracle, a flat-out miracle you cannot explain in human terms. In fact, I don't believe you can explain it even in terms of naturalistic evolution. And then the New Testament begins with a miracle. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The New Testament begins with a miracle. The Bible ends... Not with dismissing miracles, the Bible ends in Revelation with a flurry of miracles. The second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. Listen, the relationship between miracles, the miraculous, and the Christian faith is not like the relationship between the brand of hot dogs in a baseball game with the Atlanta Braves. 
I mean, it doesn't matter whether you've got Nathan's Hot Dogs or Ballpark Franks or Hebrew National. It makes no difference. You can still have a baseball game. And the baseball game does not depend upon the brand of hot dog. In fact, it doesn't depend on the existence of hot dogs either. Ladies and gentlemen, the relationship of miracles to the Christian faith is not like that. The, the, the relationship between miracles and the Christian faith is more like the relationship of baseball to bases, bats, and balls. There, that's, that's the relationship. You cannot have a Christian faith without the miraculous, and God will not accommodate the skeptic. God will not bow before the skeptic. God will not meet the skeptic on his terms. God shouts to the earth, I am a supernatural God who intervenes with the miraculous. Deal with it, all the earth. Man, I feel like dabbing. (laughs) I would, but I've only got one of those in me a Sunday, all right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cure for the, sick, the sickness of sign-seeking. And, and you, do you see how large that is? You've got to embrace the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to be saved and made right with God. The, the New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann tried to engage in a process of removing the miraculous from the Scripture or treating all the miracles like parables, not as historical events. And Karl Barth said it right about him. He said, Rudolf Bultmann is not a Christian, nor can he be, because he does not believe in the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and friend, we didn't open the doors to offend you today, but God has taken the resurrection of Christ, the miraculous Christ, the miracles of the Bible, and put them up front. He's not embarrassed he, uh, by the miraculous, he, he's, not, he's not seeking to hide or obscure them and surprise you with them later. They are up front, and you've got to embrace that kind of God to be made right with God, or there's no hope. Now, how can I prevent the sickness of sign-seeking? Well, there are three preventative measures found here in this text, from verses 5 through 12. Uh, Jesus and his disciples cross over the sea, and Jesus warns them, to be wary of the leaven or the influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees, to be uh, leery of the things the Pharisees and Sadducees taught that justified their rejection of Christ and the demand for some kind of material, uh, supernatural, additional confirmation of Christ. He said, beware of that. Well, they get confused and they think, well, we didn't bring bread. Now, my question is, look, you just had 12 baskets full and seven ba- you got 19 baskets full of bread. Where'd it go? Are you jokers that hungry? I mean, did you eat it all? What, what'd you do with it? But, but it's gone at this point. And, and they're a little worried that Jesus is chastising them for not actually having bread. And Jesus says, wait, wait, I'm not worried about bread here. I mean, did I not just provide enough bread for the 5,000 from five loaves and for the 4,000 from seven loaves? Look, if it's bread you need, I, I can produce it. That's no problem. We'll get to the other side of the sea. Show me a straw of wheat, and I'll feed all of you from that, okay, is what I will do. That's not the the concern here. What I'm concerned about is that the Pharisees and Sadducees 
have a disposition and attitude towards me that is like leaven. It is really easy to influence people this way. And it will permeate your thinking and your ministry and your life and your walk if you're not careful. That's what Jesus is saying here in verses 5 through 12. And there are three preventative measures that he urges them to take and that I'll urge you to take to prevent the sickness of sign-seeking. The the first is in verse 4. At the very end, and he left them and departed. The first thing is to calculate. If you're demanding from him more evidence than what he's given, you've got to calculate the cost of that demand. If you're demanding he give you more evidence than he's already provided, you run the risk of verse 4. He left them and departed. If really your heart doesn't love the truth or isn't submissive before God, but you're really trying to justify your unbelief and resistance to Christ, if you come out and demand more evidence, you're going to find Jesus leaving and departing. Is it really that important to fight with God? Now look, I'm not your problem. I didn't write all this. I just report it. I just declare what's there. That's it. So don't get angry with the messenger. Most do. But if you've got a problem with the demand to immediately repent and place faith with Christ, your problem's not with me, it's with God. And if you tell him no, you run the risk of him leaving and departing. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to remain in unbelief and resistance? Calculate that. Then awake. In verse 6, he said, take heed and beware of this teaching. In verse 11, he meant the teaching or the doctrine of the Pharisees. Uh, You you need to be wary because it's like leaven. A little bit can influence a whole lot in your soul. I mean, if you think that you're smarter than others, and if we just would read the books and blogs that you read, we would get it. You might need to be alarmed by that attitude. Um, If you are more infatuated with human books than God's book, the Bible, you might need to be aware. And, And then finally, trust. Jesus pelts them with questions, beginning in verse 8. Look, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a barrage, a bombardment of questions. Oh, you of little faith. And that's really the heart of the problem here. Why do you reason among yourselves? Blam. One. Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? Blam. Number two. Verse 10. Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000? Blam. Number three. Verse 11, how is it that you do not understand? Blam! Number four, Jesus gives no quarter or sympathy to a lack of faith when he's provided enough of the evidence. Now, we we need to dismiss the notion that is popular in some religious circles that faith in Christ is a blind leap into the dark or that you merely believe despite the evidence that your will and your mind and your heart overcome the evidence and you believe despite it and it's a blind no 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 
That's not what faith is. It never has been. And it is popular among some religious people to say that. It's popular among atheists to accuse us of that. That's not it at all. Faith is not believing despite the evidence. It's taking all the evidence into consideration and then making a commitment. And that's what faith is. I'm not asking you to believe despite the evidence. I'm suggesting that you take it all into account and make a commitment to Jesus Christ. Creation. Jesus believed it. And it had to start somewhere. And it's obvious it didn't come together by random chance. And then take a look at Israel. All those who've ever opposed Israel are on the ash heap of history. Even up until the Nazis. God has kept His promise. That's not to say everything the nation of Israel does is right. But God has stood by the Jews through the years. And, and, and then, what, what do you do with Christ Himself? And then what do you do with this cross and His resurrection? Then what about the existence of the church? And, and its continued expansion. They said a hundred years ago the church wouldn't exist in this century. And folks, it's never been larger in all its history. There's a great revival that took place a hundred years ago, and it continues south of the equator through our missionary work. How, how do you explain that? How do you explain the changed lives? And then, how do you explain when someone opens the Word of God with a love for truth and a humble heart, God Himself confirms the truth of the Word. He attests Himself to the truth of His Son. Listen, when you come to faith in Christ, you are not taking a leap into the dark, you're taking a step into the light. That's what you're doing with Jesus. And that's what God is calling you to do today. I remember back when our children were smaller, we had this thing called the FWF. I've told you about it before, the Family Wrestling Fellowship. And it was a remarkable thing. Um, and when Sarah Kate came along, she got to be about three years old, and she would climb on top of the back of the couch, and in professional wrestling, not wrestling, wrestling, professional wrestling, she would do what is called a diving crossbody, where she would jump, and position her body sideways in midair and land on top of us. And she did that up until just last week. She would just jump and boom, land on every one of us. I mean, this blonde hair, blue-eyed streak, boom, there. And then again, boom. I mean, over and over, it's the only move that she ever had in professional wrestling. But she did it, and she did it constantly and consistently. And I mean, she would leap and she would fly into the, she would appear to take her life in her hands. But you know why she did it so often? Well, she had good reason to. In all those years, she was never injured or hurt by it. Because I was underneath the catcher. And that is what God Almighty is saying to you. I need you to take a diving crossbody onto my son. And there is no good reason not to. None. Now, I want to conclude this morning with three, three statements. Then I want to invite you to trust the Lord, to pull off your own diving crossbody. Now, that's figurative. Don't take it literal right now, okay? The first thing is, God has provided enough evidence, and He expects us to act on it now. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. 
You, you say, wait a minute, I'm not ready. Well, you may not be, but you were supposed to be. The day of your salvation has visited you and you're not ready? Really? Are, are you 12 yet? That means you've been able to read for six years. The place, even Walmart's covered up with Bibles. There's enough opportunity there to interact with God on His terms. And you're, not re- and you're 12 and you're not ready? Wait, oh, you're 22. That means you've got a decade more. You're 32. That means you, you've got 26 years you were supposed to get. You, you see what I'm saying? God has given enough evidence to convince the entire world. And when you hear the gospel for the first time, you're supposed to respond. There's a second statement. When encountering skepticism, if you encounter it from others, ask the question, well, what have you done with the current evidence? What have you done with the evidence you already have? And do not be ashamed or embarrassed to go back to creation. I mean, how did it all get started? I mean, even Albert Einstein had to come to the conclusion that the universe had a beginning, and he had to confess and admit some designer pulled it off. Don't be embarrassed to do that. Keep asking questions about that. Or ask about the resurrection. How do you explain the resurrection? And you may not have all the answers. You don't have to. But the Holy Spirit will cause the person to whom you're talking to to swim in it for a while he will aid your words ask him about the bible how can you not believe the bible jesus did we're not better than him are we and if they will then what they've just done is that they've thrown you into a figurative briar patch and that's precisely where you want to be the third statement is the refusal to trust jesus is serious and unreasonable it's heart disease that could kill you eternally coming to faith in jesus is the remedy to it there is never ever a good reason to delay coming to jesus to doubt him or to take another path jesus is the true and living way god takes this seriously he never assigned another messiah he never assigned another master he never assigned another lord he sure didn't never assign another savior christ and christ alone has the validity of heaven from God, and it's enough. It's enough. Heard about this car driver who, in his car, blew through a stop sign, and a trooper stopped him. And when he rolled down his window, he said, didn't you see the sign? He said, yes, but my problem was I didn't see you. (laughs) You know, I know some that said that this past week. No names to be mentioned. God has put up a sign of Christ in many of them, and He's not hidden. He's made Himself very clear and very open and very lucid. And He invites you to trust Him today, to give your all, including your sins, and He'll take them, and your guilt, and all your eternity, your life. He wants that all. You know, here at Beach Haven, we we sing a song after the message, and we invite people to come get the practical help they need in making a decision for Christ. Our staff will help you. They'll be here in the front. We want to invite you to come as so many others have come. But first, I want to ask you to stand with me, and let's pray together about it, and we'll give you that opportunity.
Father, we thank you that you have made the name and the truth of Jesus exceptionally clear. In fact, he is more clear than yesterday's weather. He's more clear than our most recent memory. He's more clear than the statement I just made. He's given us enough. And I thank you that he covers the extremes. Everything on each pole and everything in between. He, he covers and he promises and loves and invites the old and the young, the brilliant and the simple, those that have a background in the faith and those who are just new to it. And God, I want to pray in these moments that you'll do anything that's necessary for our friends today to trust you and to turn to you. We're going to sing. Our staff will be here. Why don't you come? Trust Christ. Let us help you. Maybe you already have, but you need to follow Him and obey Him in baptism. It's the first step after you meet Christ. Or then, maybe God wants you to be part of this church. You come. But as you come, surrender to Him. Let me finish my prayer. We're going to invite you. Lord God, I want to pray that every thought, every feeling, and God, every every decision we make now would conform to the majesty of Christ. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit to make it real? In Jesus' name, amen.